This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, January 7th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. The president's executive action on guns was a whole lot of talk, a few tears, but not a whole lot that's new. The most problematic element of the president's plan is a challenge to the due process rights and other rights of older Americans receiving Social Security. Dave Kopel, associate policy analyst at the Cato Institute, looks at the president's wish list. On the president's actions, uh, re- executive action relating to guns, what was, for gun owners at least, the least objectionable? That he restated accurately what the law already is and has been since 1968, that if you are engaged in the business of selling firearms, then you have to have a federal firearms license. Now, walk us through that because it, it, it sounds strong. The media likes it, but you say it's been on the books for a long time. Well, no wonder the media likes it. It was enacted by Congress in the Gun Control Act of 1968, and then in 1986 in the Firearms Owners Protection Act, which amended the 1968 law, additional specificity was put in. And the president's so-called executive action was talk, where he accurately said what the law has always been interpreted to require. And he had the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives put out a brochure which says, it answers the question, do I need a federal firearms license? And it explains the law, talks about some of the uh, principles and facts that have been derived from court cases. And some basic scenarios. Yeah, and some basic scenarios of... You know, one guy is doing this. Oh, he doesn't need a federal firearms license. In fact, he couldn't be issued one because he's not engaged in the business. You know, he just needed some money and sold three of his guns, but he just did it once. And the statutory standard is you are engaged in the business if and only if it is a regular course of conduct for the principal objective of livelihood or profit. And as the statute goes on, it's not engaged in the business if your sales are occasional or, for example, it's the sale of all or part of a collection or an estate. So you you sell three guns once because you wanted to raise some money. That's not engaged in the business. On the other hand, if you say you go to flea markets every week, find the undervalued guns, buy them, and then let's say every month you set up your own table to sell guns at the uh, more accurate market price and you make a profit by doing this and this is why you're at it, then you do need a federal firearms license. So that's how it's been ever since September 1968. It's a reasonable law. And despite what the White House fooled the much of the media into believing, there's never been a gun show exemption or an internet exemption or anything else like that. Everything I just described applies throughout the United States with no geographical limitations. And if the sale takes place in, a, in your basement because you have a home-based business or at a retail store because that's how you're set up or at a gun show or on the internet or by teleportation when that's invented in the future, doesn't matter. Never has mattered. Now, with respect to uh, mental health, the president talked about uh, boosting some efforts at, at that. How do you evaluate the effort, the, re- the relationship here between mental health and gun violence? The concept he's talking about is is correct. 
And I wrote a long article that was just published in, in the Howard Law Journal about why it's so important for public safety purposes to help people who are mentally ill, particularly people with severe mental illnesses. We know, first of all, that they are victimized by violent crime at a much higher rate than the general population is. And so the, the biggest numerical crime reductive advantage gain we're going to get from helping the, the seriously mentally ill is reducing crimes against the mentally ill themselves because their mental illness, among other things, often harms cognition, executive function, things like that. So it makes them less aware of potential dangers to, that they need to get away from before it becomes an attack. There's a lot of social science pro and con about are people with mental illnesses more likely to commit violent crimes than the general population. And without getting into that, what all the social science agrees is that at the extreme end of criminal behavior, homicide, there is a very disproportionate involvement of people with serious mental illness. Uh, for example, schizophrenia being a huge risk factor in the perpetration of a homicide, even though, again, we should emphasize only a very small fraction of people who have even severe schizophrenia ever perpetrate a homicide. But that's a, it's a larger fraction than the, the general population. And thus, if you look at state prisons, roughly one in five people who are in prison for homicide have serious mental illnesses. And those are not crimes which typically get on cable television and all the, the national chatter and international news. First of all, they're, they're frequently only, almost always, only one or two, so I guess you could call that only, but it, it's, they're perpetrated against persons the, who are known to the perpetrator, most often family members, people like that, never gets in the news beyond uh, the local area. But it, it's a serious contributor to overall homicide. And then on the homicides that do get the media attention, particularly the, the mass attacks on strangers in public places, very, very disproportionate uh, role of mental illness in that. Not to say it's the only thing, but the, there you get half or more of the adult perpetrators often having mental illness. And even on things that we that don't necessarily get classified in that category, uh, terrorist attacks like San Bernardino, well, the male perpetrator, well, his father, according to the parents' divorce papers, was a bipolar abusive alcoholic. And we know that bipolar syndrome, bipolar syndrome has a very strong genetic component. So even, even there, mental illness can, can play an important role. So I, I say great to the president for taking the leadership and saying we need to do help, more to help the severely mentally ill. And that ought to be something that people on all sides of the gun issue can unite on. You know, whatever you think about other issues, we need to move forward on helping the mentally ill. And it is quite expensive to do, to have the, the inpatient treatment available for people who voluntarily seek it. Way too many of those facilities were closed in the failed deinstitutionalization movement in the uh, mid to late 19, 1960s through the 1980s. And, but although it's very expensive up front, it will more than pay for itself easily just in reduced crime and victimization costs. 
the most objectionable uh, element of what the the president has uh, done with respect to guns deals with social security and people who elderly people in particular who are seeking assistance uh, dealing with day-to-day activities. Right. So we were just talking about people who genuinely have severe mental illnesses, want to get treatment, and are often turned away because they're told, and this happened to one of my friends, they said, oh, you're not admission material yet. You know, you, you know you're going down, you're becoming psychotic, but you're not psychotic enough yet for us to put you into a facility where we could get you a few days of treatment and stabilize you. But on another front, on Social Security beneficiaries, the president is going the wrong way, which in essence is going to be falsely classifying people as mentally def- men- as mental defectives. That's the term used in the gun control statute. If you are a Social Security beneficiary, you can ask to have a financial representative appointed for you so that the Social Security checks go to the financial representative rather than to you. And in dealing with all the bureaucratic issues that sometimes you have to with Social Security, the financial representative can act on your behalf. So like an adult child, a younger friend. Exactly. So let's say you're, you know, you're like Dolly Madison, who became a widow in her life at one point, and you know, never balanced a checkbook, just left all of the financial stuff to her husband, and now she's on her own. She doesn't know how to do this kind of stuff, or if she does, she knows that she probably wouldn't do it as well as it ought to be done. So she has a exactly one of her children or a, a family friend appointed as, a, as her financial representative on this. And according to a proposal that was put out by the S- Social Security Administration last summer, they were saying, well, the Fe- Gun Control Act says you can't possess a gun if you have been adjudicated as a mental defective. That's the statutory term. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms has uh, regulations which add to that that says means you've been found incompetent to manage your own affairs. And so Social Security was saying, well, anybody, so let's start turning over to the FBI our lists of everybody who's on this financial representative uh, thing because that means they've admitted to us, supposedly, that they are incompetent to manage their own affairs and they are a, a mental defective. So this is defining adjudication down. Defining adjudication down is as saying, dear Social Security Administration, instead of sending the money to me, send the money to my financial representative and she'll take care of, of managing it. And so ATF's conclusion based upon that quote unquote adjudication is? Well, Social Security's view as they proposed it and as they continue to defend it is, well, that means you're, you've voluntarily declared yourself to be incompetent to manage your own affairs. Although I know really a lot of people who aren't too competent about managing their checkbook who are quite competent at managing their life in terms of buying groceries, taking care of their house, and doing everything else. And practically that means with respect to guns. It, with, with, with respect to guns, it means once you're in a prohibited category, like a supposedly an adjudicated mental defective, it's a five-year federal felony for you to possess a gun. So you could have this widow we've just described, and she has her, her two of her husband's old hunting rifles, which she's keeping around, and she'll eventually pass on to the kids. And the day that she asks the Social Security Administration for the appointment of a financial representative, it's a felony 
for her just to have those guns in her house under her control. Now, what exactly this is going to look like, we don't know yet, because the White House announcement was simply saying, uh, I'm going to tell the Social Security Administration to write a regulation. So we haven't even yet had a proposed regulation, which would be open for public comment, and then there's a, a months-long process of that, and then publication of the final regulation. We don't know the final details, but at the level of generality they put it out is, is a huge and malicious infringement on Second Amendment rights and just on the rights in general of elderly people. And due process. <laughs> a- absolutely. There, there's a lot of constitutional problems with it. And in this press conference, which was all about mass shootings, you know, attacks on schools, things like that, you tell me where 80-year-old widows uh, have a record in this country of going out and shooting up shopping malls or attacking military bases like Fort Hood or these other notorious crimes. They're cracking down not on the actual perpetrators, but on a class of people which by all statistics, is about the least offending group in terms of perpetrating violent gun crimes. And President Obama couched his discussion and, can, and the, the, a lot of the uh, news channels uh, follow along with this, which is this is about mass shootings. And that represents a vanishingly small share of gun crime in the United States. It gets the most attention out of anything, and for understandable reasons. But if we think in terms of what are the likelihood of that that, that could happen to an individual, it's, I, I believe, less than the risk of being struck by lightning. But of course, we take precautions about being struck by lightning. When I'm playing golf and there's lightning, I stop playing golf rather than standing outside with a big iron stick in my hand, or aluminum, I guess. But it's not, it's not where the most lives can be saved, even in these bogus claims which come out of somebody on Reddit who says we have a mass shooting in the United States every day, which is only true when you use a very expansive definition, not the FBI definition. But whatever definition you use, gun violence in this country, that is violent crime perpetrated using guns against innocent people, is overwhelmingly concentrated in inner cities. And within that, among male teenagers and young adults, particularly blacks and to a lesser extent, Hispanics. So roughly speaking, for white people who, you say, die from a gun, about 80% of those are suicides. you very heavily concentrated under the, in the older male population. For black people, it's the reverse. It's about 80% are homicides, very heavily concentrated in the younger male population. And those are the crimes that go on every day. The toll by them is by far the highest. The good news is gun homicide in this country in general is down, uh, not not suicide, but homicide, killing another person intentionally, is down 49% over the last two decades, even at a time when the gun supply has gone up. So we've made a lot of progress on that, but there's still plenty of room for continued improvement. The problem is the anti-gun lobbies have accurately recognized as a political matter they can't really get voters in this country much interested in that problem. So all they do is they try to scare the pants off of suburban moms of young children 
to frighten them into thinking that their kids are going to get killed in some attack at their public school, which is a very, very, very unlikely thing to happen. But it's only by concentrating on these rare events that they can get any attention to their prohibitionist cause, which leads to a tremendous misallocation of resources, including the misallocation of resources that we saw from the president's speech. If he wanted to save lives and have fewer innocent people killed by guns, he instead of wrapping this whole thing in mass shootings against strangers in these things like Columbine High School or, or Newtown, he would be focusing instead on the inner city crime problem and seeing what we can do about that. Dave Kopel is an associate policy analyst at the Cato Institute. You can subscribe to this and other podcasts at our website, cato.org.